Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School, the podcast where you get fresh insight from leaders at top tech companies and startups. Remember, you can learn product management in person at our 15 campuses worldwide or study with us online. Visit productschool.com to learn more about our courses. You can also hang out with the leaders from these podcasts at our hundreds of annual events and catch us at ProductCon, the world's largest PM conference that takes place every year across the United States and in London. So I'm going to be presenting on various different AI models, uh, what they do, how to use them, and really how to communicate and understand them. Uh, it's a talk I've actually given internally at Walmart a couple of times, so I hope I'm going to stay on topic here. It's a little bit bigger audience than I was prepared for, so I apologize if this is a little rough, but I'm going to try and make it work. So I don't know if any of you guys have seen this diagram, um, but this is kind of like the go-to that I've used for a long time. Uh, it's really, really helpful when you're trying to solve an AI problem, and any AI problem can broadly, well, not any, let's rewind that back a little bit. Most AI problems can broadly be broken down into one of these four groups. You're either trying to classify something, you're trying to count something, you're trying to find out what's important about something, or you're trying to group things together. Um, don't worry, this is on Scikit-Learn's website. It's totally open source. You guys can find it for those of you taking pictures. Um, it is really important to think about AI in this way, though, and to kind of think about what model you want to use, why you want to use that model, and if it's answering the kind of question that you have. Because at the end of the day, these AI models are all about trying to answer specific questions. So when you're trying to determine how many of something there is, and as a great example for Walmart, one of the use cases we worked on is counting rotisserie chickens. So it's really, really important that we always have chickens out. Customers want chickens. They love chicken. That's what drives them to a lot of stores. It's a big part of my life. You guys laugh. But <laughs> <laughs> so we have to build these models that can take in a feed from a camera and be able to count how many chickens there are sitting in the rotisserie rack. And it's important to note that when you're building something like that, you're going to want to use this kind of regressor model because these models are fundamentally very different from each other. You'll talk about them in different ways. They have different properties. They have different KPIs. So again, getting that idea that, okay, I know that I want how many, important. So another one, a great example is a classifier. Um, classifiers are really good at saying that this image is like that image. Uh, we use a lot of binary classifiers. Again, very big example at Walmart. You want to know if something is on the shelf or not. So it's a binary classifier, out or not. You have a region of an image. You say, is it empty? Pretty straightforward. Detectors are a little bit different than classifiers in the sense that detectors are going to be used for localization. So if you're not trying to classify the image, you want to know specifically where an ob object is in an image, you're going to work with a detector. And now, just to add a bit of a caveat to this. I work primarily in computer vision, so I'm not going to talk too much about NLP. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about really anything else other than computer vision. So <laughs> we're going to stay on topic on that. So if you want to know where in the image your things are, you're going to use an object detector, some great examples, SSD, YOLO. Um, you'll be familiar with a lot of them if you work with anybody who works in CV. Dimensionality reducers are probably the hardest one to explain. And these are when you have big series of data, big feature sets, uh, usually huge tables with thousands and thousands of columns, and you want to find out what's important. What is it that causes these things to be different from each other? And again, these are very different models and very different styles of working than your detectors or your classifiers. But there are very similar to the last one, which is the clustering algorithm. So clustering algorithms are really important for us. Uh, one of the things we've worked on, actually the last talk I gave was on a thing called Viper. It's our visual product recognition system. And what it does is it creates clusters in a high-dimensional space. I'm not going to get too much into the weeds on it, but the idea behind it is 
I want to say, which cluster does this new image belong to? Which is actually very similar to classification, but it works slightly differently because we're putting these images in groups so that we can recognize them. So the first question is, what kind of question are you trying to solve? Whenever you set out to build an AI system, before you start building anything, you really want to know what that question is. And one of the key learnings we've had uh, is that, that one question per model is really, really important. When you're training any of these AI models, you need to use what's called a loss function. Compound loss functions are loss functions that take into account many different features of your data or many different potential objectives tend to dramatically underperform very simple loss functions. So if you wanna say, how many items are there? Don't add additional properties. Don't try to say, oh, and by the way, how red is it? Or how blue is it? Or how big is the image? Try to stick to one very specific thing per model. Another thing that we learned was chains of models are often really brittle. So error propagates through this system and it grows exponentially. So if your first model does one thing and then its output is fed to the second model and its output is fed to the third model, if each one is 90% accurate, by the end you're at 72% accuracy, which I'm gonna get into very specifics is accuracy, precision, recall. These are all really important terms to know when we talk about the models. But again, just kind of some key takeaways from the things that we've done at Walmart, building these models, deploying them at scale. Um, that one question per model is really super important. And just one last bit on that. There are a lot of things that you'll do post-processing on models. So if you're building any kind of system, you're gonna have some business logic, some set of business rules that the stakeholders have communicated that's really important to kind of codify in a very direct way. You don't want this to be deep learned. You don't want this to be approximated. You wanna say, if the item is this GTIN, don't sell it. If the item is alcohol, don't sell it to a miner. Again, kind of a big one for us. So you don't code those into your models. You kind of break those out into your separate business heuristics, but those are just simple models. And so you'll treat them that way. The different models all have different ways of learning. And now, it's not to say that you can't build a clustering algorithm that's semi-supervised or unsupervised, that it has to be fully supervised. It's not to say that they can't be mixed and matched, but when you think about the way that your model is gonna learn, you really need to think about what you have available to teach this model. So if you've got tons and tons of annotated training data, a supervised approach works really well. If you have very little annotated training data or getting that data is gonna be super expensive, a uh, great example for us was we were doing action classification. We wanted to see when a person took something off the shelf, when they put it back on the shelf. Big problem is people don't put things back on shelves in retail stores. So we have a tremendous amount of data of the off case and very little of the on. And it became very difficult for us, very costly, to actually pay actors to go into the store and take things off the shelf and put them back on. Yeah, it's a weird life, man. <laughs> So again, you wanna know whether you have access to that supervised data or whether you're gonna to have to use some kind of unsupervised method. Unsupervised methods tend to work better for certain model types, supervised tend to work better for other. And then lastly, if you're gonna be getting real-time feedback, if you're going to be able to interact with your user, uh, let's say you're doing a search suggestion or if you're doing something where you're getting that kind of immediate feedback, you wanna consider a reinforcement learning technique. Again, you can use reinforcement learning with a classifier. Uh, DeepQ networks are a great example but reinforcement learning is generally gonna be only applicable to those situations where you have that real-time instantaneous feedback. So I'm gonna skip over the bits about Siamese networks because this is more specific and more technical, but if you're curious, Siamese network is what we built Viper off of, um, and it is a network that compares two things. So don't worry about it too much. So getting into the how your machine will learn, another thing to consider beyond just can you get that real-time feedback is do you have downtime to train? 
if your system has to be live 24-7 and can never go offline, you have to figure out how you're going to handle that. A lot of deep learning models require intensive GPU training. While it can be done in the background separate from your production stream, it's still something that you have to factor in. If you need to be learning with 100% uptime, so for example, for us going back to Viper, which I know I literally just said I wouldn't talk about, uh, we need to constantly re-enroll new products. So Walmart takes in, we have about 30,000 products in the Intelligent Retail Lab where we are testing all of this. We have, I think it's like four or five million throughout the chain, I actually don't know off the top of my head. But even in the IRL, we churn through about three or 400 new products a day. So packaging changes come in, things go out, uh, things go out of stock, vendors stop delivering things. So if your system needs to respond to that in real time, you really don't have time to retrain it. You can't be out. I can't not scan an item for 36 hours. They get very upset about that. Um, and so thinking about that downtime is a big thing to consider when you're choosing what you're going to do. And then lastly, or sorry, not lastly, um, moving forward, how will you build your CICD? This is more of an engineering challenge, but it is something that product folks need to consider. What are these tests that you wanna make sure a new model passes? What are these KPIs that are absolute blockers to releasing production? And if you don't capture those requirements, if you don't document those requirements, you don't build them into your testing pipeline, you'll find very quickly that models can sneak in that do slightly better than the previous generation, but fail horribly in a catastrophic way for the business that you haven't considered in that testing. So making sure you get a good set of really like gatekeepers to say this model can't go out. You may not want to include them in your loss functions. You may not want to train these models on those particular criteria, but you might know that these are catastrophic cases that I have to make sure we gate any deployment from. So another thing you can think about is if you can make use of this knowledge base. The concept of knowledge base is very, very old in AI. It actually dates back prior to even expert systems. But is there some frame of reference that the model can have access to that you can update independently from the agent? Because it's important to think about AI models as kind of like really stupid rats. Like they have very, very, very little neural capacity. They don't know much. They can't think too hard. And if you can give them flashcards or something that they can check back to, they tend to do very, very well. So if you can build up this knowledge base that it can reference back, that's a key feature. But if you're building something that's like an IoT device, if you're pushing something out to edge compute and you have 10K of storage, that's a constraint that you need to know before you go into trying to solve this problem. And so, again, going back to your CICD, how will you know if the model is meeting the business needs? I'm a big fan of hypothesis-driven development, I'm a big fan of understanding what it is that you're trying to solve before you get into actually writing code. So before you go into building any of these models, it's really important that you've already thought about how are you measuring these KPIs, what are the KPIs, and how will you know that this thing is actually doing what it is that you've set out? How will you validate your hypothesis? So once you know what type of model you're going to do, use, once you know how you're going to train it, you really need to think about how you're gonna implement it because that's gonna have a big impact on the overall functioning of the system. Not a huge thing for product owners, so I'll skip forward. Uh, so in this life cycle that we have, we go through many steps to make sure before we initiate any AI project, um, I don't want to just read it all down the list to you, but it's broadly broken up into a few steps of first figure out what's important, then figure out what we're going to use to identify it and to work with it, begin that training, start figuring out if it's working. It's a very agile life cycle. You really want to have that quick feedback, that quick cycle to know, all right, we've tested something, it's not working the way we expect it to, how are we going to change it, how are we going to identify it? And then once you're getting going and you're really moving forward into that kind of production workflow, it's not really like a KTLO from uh, 
to keep the lights on phase from the software development life cycle. It's more of the, we're productionizing, we're expanding, we're moving forward. That's when you wanna start looking into cross-validation, your source rating. So when you're getting this data in, and I'm gonna cover this in a little bit, the idea of ground truth is a fallacy that you really have to dispel both at the product level and at the engineering level because people make mistakes. So how do you protect against that? How do you identify it? And then sanitization, how do you prevent it from being done maliciously? Uh, for those of you who are familiar with adversarial examples, so a tremendous amount of research has been done on stickers that you can put on stop signs that make self-driving cars think they're armadillos, um, has terrible effects. So getting into ground truth. There is no such thing as ground truth. Uh, I think it was Voltaire who said, doubt is unpleasant, but certainty is absurd. Um, and really, that's what you see today in a lot of this training that we do for AI. People think that, oh, I had a human look at this image, they drew a bounding box, guaranteed it's right. I guarantee you it's not. There is some percentage of error in every human annotation, and if you don't take that into consideration as you're beginning to build these models, you're gonna have a really bad time. A lot of times people tend to privilege or overprivilege the professional annotator, um, which I wanna use that with air quotes because the professional annotator is always the cheapest person your vendor could find in whatever country they were legally allowed to outsource to. <laughs> They're probably not the most qualified person to make this decision. So when you have people that are closer to your source, again, going back to these Walmart examples, we have associates who work in the store who are literally looking at that rotisserie chicken shelf right now, and they're telling me, there are no chickens on this shelf, despite the fact that my annotator, annotation vendor is telling me 27. Um, there are definitively not 27. Um, a great concept to keep in mind is that X is your observation, and I kind of have this broken down on the chart here. Theta is some unknowable ground truth, and W is some unknowable error term or noise term. It's very common in uh, information theory and th signal processing, um, but this is something that it's really important to think about. Whenever you get that point back, it's gonna be somewhere on that curve. It's almost certainly not going to be correct. So there's a lot of work being done to understand the sources of error in annotation, and I think that it's an area that I think people should really try to improve on, but we're getting there. Um, the biggest sources are fatigue, coordination, misaligned incentives, and that unconscious bias. And for fatigue specifically, if you're building a pipeline that requires a tremendous amount of annotated data, and you put someone in a room without windows for eight hours a day and ask them to draw bounding boxes around chickens, they're going to get tired of doing it really fast, usually around the seventh or eighth minute. So you're gonna see that their work gets very poor very quickly. And coordination is another big issue. So if you guys are familiar with basic tenets of HCI, uh, Fitz's law, the human-computer interaction, if you make it hard for the person to do the task, they're gonna mess it up. So try to make it as easy as possible on them from a manual dexterity point, from an accessibility point. All the things that you would have considered for a user, think of that human as a user and try to make it as useful for them as possible, whatever tool you're giving them. Misaligned incentives is another big one. Uh, when you're paying by the piece, um, they tend to process a lot of pieces very quickly and very poorly. So make sure that your incentives are aligned and a good way to handle that is making sure that you're looking at paying people only for work that gets validated by someone else. So if you have two vendors, send the same stuff to them, see when it comes back. If they disagree, then well, one of them's wrong. Don't pay either of them. And if you can negotiate your contracts to handle that, it actually works out pretty well and a lot of vendors are used to it at this point. And then unconscious bias is another one. Uh, when we first started getting into a lot of the systems we worked on, there were a lot of preconceived notions about human behavior. There were a lot of preconceived notions about who did things um, that they probably shouldn't have been doing. 
And so when we actually started annotating, we found that our annotators also carried those biases and then were more apt to annotate things incorrectly depending on the subject's uh, perceived ethnicity, gender, age, et cetera. The little old lady with the four cats, she's totally not gonna do the thing and that she does a lot actually. Um, and so again, going to these areas of research, uh, there's a tremendous amount of research being done into making annotation better and making it more reliable. Um, I don't want to bore you guys too much with the specifics here, and the counter is not counting down, so I'm not really sure where I'm at time-wise. Uh, but I want to stay on topic here. But what you want to look for uh, as you're going through, there's just this tremendous body of work that people are doing to make sure that you can more reliably trust the annotation that you're being given. So getting to what you guys all care about, how can product really help to drive AI? How can you guys really drive this forward? I know I talked a lot about kind of the mechanics under the hood, but I wanted to lay this groundwork. So the big things that you really need to be able to understand to help make AI effective are this confusion matrix, which really have some basis in probability theory and statistics, hypothesis-driven development, experimental validation, and then just understanding the basic terms. So getting into those terms, these are probably the most commonly mistaken or conflated terms that I've seen in the industry so far. Precision, accuracy, and recall all mean different things. Um, one of my favorites is when you ask someone, okay, uh, the model's accuracy is 80%, why is it that you set the threshold at 70% and you think that this is not meeting your needs? And they're like, well, when it gives an alert, it's wrong half the time. Yes, I know that, but the event doesn't occur very frequently. So when it doesn't give an alert, it's right almost all the time. So the accuracy is, if you ask the model for an inference, the case of binary classification, if you say, did my anomaly occur or not, how many times was it right? Not how many times did it catch an event that occurred, that's recall. Not how many times did it declare, declare that an event occurred and be correct then, that's precision. Accuracy is specifically, think of that test in fourth grade, my daughter's in fourth grade, so think of that test in fourth grade and you went through and you circled the right answer. It's not what you wrote, that's not relevant. It doesn't matter what happened, it doesn't matter if the correct answer was C, it doesn't matter if you said B. How many times did you get the correct answer? I cannot stress enough how often this term is misused. Precision is usually what people are thinking of when they think of accuracy. Because the event that you care about is normally the anomaly. You're normally interested in saying, okay, when I issue this alert, when I call that we're out of rotisserie chickens, how often am I right? Because that usually is a cost associated with it. When you trigger this event, when you cause this alert, something's going to happen. The whole point of the system is not just for us to collect data, not just for us to look at chickens all day, it's to do something, to take some business action, in our case, Cooking a lot of rotisserie chickens turns out to be somewhat expensive. So if you're doing that in an automated fashion, if you're triggering that action, that associate action, and you're wrong, you're costing the company money. Recall is also another area where there's usually a business cost associated. If we're missing out on restocking those chickens, people are leaving our store to go somewhere else with chickens. Again, I don't know why this is so important to them, but it's a behavior that we actually observe pretty dramatically. Another thing that product folks really need to bring to the table when they come to these AI discussions is that incident rate. When you're doing anomaly detection, if the incident occurs one in a hundred million times and you ask me for a system that's 90% accurate, I'm just gonna say no all the time because I'll be right 99.9999% of the time. If you don't know what the incidence rate is, it's really hard for us to adequately design as engineers, to adequately design systems, test systems, build the training pipelines. So it's super important that before you approach this, you've done at least some base research, some sampling, some what you would do in normal user research, something to approach and approximate this incidence rate. 
And the error rate is just how often the model is wrong. So that's not something that you have to like get super confused about. Incidence rate though, super important. And here's why. So if there is only a 10% incidence rate represented by the yellow box here, um, I'm pointing at a screen that no one else can see. Uh, <laughs> there's only a 10% incidence rate and there's a 90% negative rate. If the model is right 80% of the time, that means that its maximum precision is 33% it can never achieve a precision higher than 33% because it's going to be wrong two out of 10 times. And most likely those two times are going to be when an incident doesn't occur. So it's going to say that there were three when there was only one. And this relationship cannot change. It is a mathematical relationship. I can't tell you how many times I've had people ask us, oh yeah, yeah just, just tighten up the precision. Don't worry about accuracy. <sighs> That's not a thing I can do because numbers. So again, understanding that relationship Super important. So getting back to that confusion matrix that I brought up a few slides ago that this is a really complicated graph. Can you see it on that? Yeah, all right. Um, the confusion matrix is basically when I say X, how often did I mean Y? So if you look at this, the confusion matrix at the top, it's the number, the classes, uh, the, sorry, the bottom it says target class, it says output class on that little graph there. Um, so you know, let's say we're doing classification and I have an image in front of us and I wanna say whether it's a person, a shopping cart, or a meat cart, because again, we're stocking chickens. So I wanna know, does this image contain those things or not? How often did I say that it had something when it didn't? How often did I say that it had a person when it didn't? These are the kinds of confusion things that you wanna know. These things are super important when you're building the models because there are usually different costs associated with different confusions. So if, for example, I say that there's a shopping cart when there's actually a meat cart, and we don't examine that image, doesn't really matter. No one cares. The cost for that confusion is effectively zero. If I say that there is nothing there, when there is in fact something there, and we do examine the image and we call the out wrong, then there's actually a business cost. So understanding your failure modes and understanding the cost of those failure modes is important, but then looking at that confusion matrix will tell you what the breakdown, what the likelihood of each failure mode is. Um, I really like the score histogram diagram, so. That's why that's there. <laughs> I have to go into that one. It looks really, really shiny. Another thing though to bring back is that the different types of models, when I mentioned they have different properties, they actually vary different properties. So regressors, for example, don't have a confusion matrix. It's not a meaningful thing. They also don't have accuracy. They don't have precision. They just have an average error. So knowing what your model's properties are really helps when you have these conversations. If you want to set a set of requirements to say, okay, we want a regressor with uh, 90% intersection over union, that doesn't mean anything. Intersection over union is a term that's specific for your object detectors. So knowing kind of the lingo of the, the models that you're working with is a really important thing to set these requirements. So wrapping it up and getting closer to the end here, good statement, bad statement, things that really help give you more concrete examples. It's super important to couch your language in statistical or probabilistic terms, even when speaking with upper management because what they take away is always the simplified version of what you said. Um, so when you say the simplified version, it gets even simpler. So if you can say that we believe that precision is between 80 and 90% with a 95% confidence based on a sample of 500, awesome. That gives them all the information they need to know. They need to know that it's a relatively small sample if your production space is large. They need to know that it's a relatively wide range. They need to know that you're confident that it's within that range, but not beyond that. They don't need to know the model's accuracy is 99% because that's not a meaningful statement. What did you test? How did you validate it? How does that generalize to your production set? All those things are things that you left out in that statement. And again, like I said, what they'll take away from that is, yeah, it's good. And then when you deploy it to production and it's not good, they get very upset with me, so. 
please don't do that. Yeah, getting it back to requirements, um, giving really good fixed requirements to talk about all the constraints of a model. Talk about things like precision, talk about things like latency, talk about things like compute requirements. Like really understand that when you go into it, because if you want to constrain these things to work at edge, they're very different than if they're working in the cloud. If you have infinite compute, we have a lot more to do. If you have a higher budget, there's more that we can do. Helping to shape that model by talking about how fast it has to respond. If we're doing payment processing, for example, latency of five seconds is pretty bad. If we're doing out detection, five seconds is pretty good. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. It's gonna take longer than five seconds for the human to get over to the shelf. It's gonna take a lot longer to cook those chickens. So knowing your problem space, knowing those requirements, knowing how they relate to each other is really helpful. Good, all right, well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Product Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.